Welcome to Unstoppable. I'm your host, Kerwin Ray, and today we talk leadership with Jocko Willink. Jocko is a highly decorated Navy SEAL, entrepreneur, and author and podcaster, and he was the commander of SEAL Team's three-task unit, Bruiser, which brought down Ramadan in the Iraqi war, and he's also the co-founder of Echelon Front, where he is a leadership instructor, speaker, and executive coach. And on top of authoring the leadership manual, Extreme Ownership, Jocko also has a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Guys, there is so much to learn from this master of discipline and leadership. If you are ready to take your leadership to the next level, by the way, his book is one of my top 10 books of all time you want to check this guy out listen up get ready to become unstoppable ladies and gentlemen it is an absolute honor and a privilege to welcome to the podcast Jocko Willink thank you so much Jocko for being here thanks for having me on that's a real pleasure man so your motivation to become a Navy SEAL what what was your desire when I was a kid yeah I was running around the woods wearing camouflage clothing burning corks with a match and blackening my face and I wanted to be some kind of a soldier and eventually I found out about what the SEAL teams were and when I found that out that's I heard that it was the hardest of the training I heard that they had a a a high percentage of casualties going to war as a matter of fact as ignorant as that may sound but the World War II underwater demolition teams that, that were the, actually the uh, NCDUs that landed prior to the landing at Normandy, they took something like 57% casualties. And so I thought, well, that's what I want to do. I want to go to war. And those guys obviously are going to war. So when when I heard about the SEAL teams, that's what I decided to do. So have you been a warrior for a long time? When did you first notice or when did you become self-aware that you had like a fighting spirit and you liked to fight? I think I always liked to fight. Yeah. You know, I think that term warrior gets thrown around by everyone about everything. What does that actually mean? Uh, you know, for me, that means that someone that's tr- training or preparing to go to war. So, yeah, I guess when I turned 18 and joined the Navy, that was on the, I was on the path. So apart from just wanting to, to, to go to war and be a soldier, was there something underneath there driving it? Was there any insecurity about like being able to protect yourself or your family? Or was it just this? desire to just go into battle? I think more than anything else, it was the desire to go into battle. I think it was playing with little toy soldiers when I was a kid and maneuvering them around in a sandbox and then going out in the woods when I was a kid and maneuvering around with my friends and trying to shoot each other with BB guns. And and I think from there, you know, that's what I wanted to do. And and I, I was a pretty patriotic kid. Yeah. And so... I, you know, looked at the Vietnam vets when I was a kid and, and thought they had this experience in their life that no one else seemed to have. And so I thought I wanted to have that too. So what's your relationship with fear now? Like obviously back then, you know, you were just a normal kid growing up, experiencing the same things that everyone else has, but you've now experienced some, you know, some really incredible stuff, some really, some stuff that for some people would consider to be quite traumatic. When you think about fear now, like, do you have a relationship with fear? Is there anything that scares you? I mean, of course, you're going to be afraid of things, but I was pretty good at compartmentalizing the fear. I realized that there were certain things that I wasn't going to be able to control. And if I couldn't control them, I wasn't going to worry about them because that's just a waste of my time and energy. And so I set them aside and, and, and did my job. What does that mean and how do you do it? Well, it means that there's, you take something and you put it in a different compartment. Yep. So you've got little compartments in your brain 
And one of them, you take all these fears of things that you can't control yep. and you put them in that compartment and then you shut it. You know, a classic example is, is being overseas and, and one of the, the main things that's gonna kill you is an IED, a roadside bomb. So you're driving along, you're doing everything that you're supposed to be doing and you get hit with a roadside bomb and you're dead. And, and that's all there is to it. Or you're gravely wounded. And like I said, you could have done everything right. You could have gathered as much intelligence. You could have picked the best route. You could have followed minesweepers. All you could do everything perfect and you can still get hit with an IED and you can be blown up and you can either die or you can be gravely wounded. And so a lot of people, you know, that's something that can scare you. But for me, okay, that I know that can happen. I've done everything I can to try and mitigate that risk. And now the rest of it, the, the rest of that thing that I can't mitigate, which is chance, uh, I'm, I'm, there's nothing I can do about it. So I'm setting it aside and I'm moving forward. I'm not gonna worry about it. Is, is this something that can be taught? Like how, how do you teach someone to deal with fear? Uh, you, you can't control it. Yeah. So if it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. And you, you've done everything you can to mitigate it. But then at the end of that, you can't do anything else. I mean, you can't control everything in the world. And as much of a control freak as you might be, you can't control everything. So at a certain point you say, okay, I can't control these things over here. So I'm gonna focus on the things I can control. This is common, Every, everybody says this. This is no, I'm not saying any, any big eureka moment, some miraculous statement. There's things you can control, work on them. The things you can't control, do the best you can, and then don't worry about them. Fantastic. Buds, um, Buds is, from everything I've read and everything I've been told, is, is a in pretty incredible training program. When you look at your experience with Buds, how did it fundamentally, did it fundamentally change you in any way? No. No. Buds is a bunch of pull-ups, push-ups, exercises. You're cold, you're wet, you're sandy, you're, you're, you're miserable and tired. Yeah. That, that's what it is. And what they do is they get rid of a bunch of people. 80% of the people quit. Yeah. 20% of the people make it through. The people that made it through, they, they make it through, they don't quit. And so the thing is people, people think it's a big deal it's a screening process at the beginning. It's a fraction of your career in the SEAL teams if you stay in the SEAL teams for a long time. Yeah. And especially if you go overseas and you go into combat, that, that just diminishes buds even more. Is it a fundamental stepping stone? And, and does it, it's a common thing that every SEAL's been through and therefore they have that, that, that datum that they go off of and they start from, but it's not that big of a deal. It, it really isn't. And people, and especially when, when I joined the Navy, we didn't know, I didn't know anything about BUDS. I knew I wanted to go to it, but I didn't go through a 13-week progressive training program to get ready for it. I didn't do any mindful meditation to get ready for it. I didn't eat any special diet to get ready for it. I did what I thought I should. I ran. I knew that you did running, swimming, and pull-ups there. I ran, I swam, and I did pull-ups. And I showed up. And if you're a relatively decent, if you're a relatively decent shape when you show, if you're in relatively decent shape when you show up there, you can make it. And these guys, you know, I get contacted all the time now of how should I prepare and what should I do? And you know, I'll get guys that say, I'm running track, I've done nine triathlons, I've, you know, I'm a gymnastics master, what do I need to do to prepare? You don't need to do anything. I was like a marginal athlete in high school. And you show up, you do what they tell you to do and you don't quit. It's not that big of a deal. It seems to me like there's a little bit more to it. And I'm, I want to dig there a little bit because 80% of people fail. And if it's just down to physical performance, like it seems to me like there's more to it than just doing pull-ups and swimming. Oh no, it's not just physical yeah. performance. The physical performance is, is 
relatively easy, okay. people will say, oh, so it's all mental. No, it's not all mental. Well, it's, is it all physical? No, it's not all physical. It's both. And if you're a great athlete, if you're a superb athlete, it's going to be less taxing mentally, for sure. And if you're a, if you're a bad athlete, but you're incredibly mentally tough, it, it's, it's going to task, task you physically, but you won't get taxed that hard mentally. And, and wherever you fall out on that scale, so you might have a guy that's a mediocre athlete and he's mediocrely tough and he'll make it through. You might have a guy that's a, a great athlete and he's not that tough, tough and he'll make it through. And you might have a guy that's super tough and he's a bad athlete and he might make it through. Now, also on top of those, you can have a guy that's a, a great athlete and he's not mentally tough and he quits. You can also have a guy that's tough as nails, but he just can't physically pass the physical evolutions. He can't pass a timed run. He can't pass a timed swim. And so he fails out of the training. So I'm not trying to totally negate the training, but it is just a fraction of your, of your career. And, you know, there's plenty of guys that make it through that you go, wow, that's, that's interesting, you know? And the two guys that I talk about that didn't make it through in my class were, one was an NCAA water polo player, uh, team captain, and I mean, just, a, you know, division one in America, that's a, you gotta be an incredible athlete to be in that position. And he quit. And then I had another guy that was an Olympic, uh, Olympic gymnastics alternate. And again, you gotta be a phenomenal athlete to be in that position and he quit. So two guys, probably the two best athletes on paper in my SEAL training class, both quit. Which is, you know, and here I was, a, a, a mediocre athlete at best in high, in high school, not even college, these, you know, and, and hey, guess what? I'm, I'm okay at everything, which is better. Because actually, one thing that comes out with these guys is buds will find your weak area and it'll exploit it. So the water the water polo guy, guess what? He was great in the water. He was crushing the swims. He wasn't good on the land. He wasn't good on the obstacle course. And the other guy, the gymnastics guy, he would fly through the obstacle course like a monkey, but he was not good in the water. And so you had one guy that was here in water, one guy that was here on land, neither one of them was good with the other, but I was in the middle. And, and you know, I was like a gray man, as they say. I was just kind of in the middle, which is pretty common. So there's a lot, so there's a lot of reasons why people don't succeed at Budsy, but if you could put it down to one thing, what would you say? Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. People ask me that all the time. If you don't quit, you keep running. Yeah. They want you to run, run. Do push-ups, do push-ups. Because I've spoken to other, other steals who have said like the most, and I've read this also in, in articles, the most important ingredient that they've identified that can mean the difference between someone making it and breaking it is grit. Is that something you subscribe to? Grit, meaning a person that doesn't quit. Exactly. So I guess we're saying the same things. But what do you, what do you say to someone's like, I want to be tougher, but, but how? How do I fucking be tougher? What do you need to be tougher in? What do you need to be tougher in? We'll say it's in the area of I need to be stronger around, you know, my business. I need to be more committed to my business in order to be able to follow through and get what it is that I want. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a tough one. Yeah. What you got to do when you want to be more committed in your business is be more committed in your business. Right? Right? Yeah. Wake up earlier. Go to work. Grind harder at it. And, and put in the effort. How do you wake up early in the morning? You set your alarm clock and you get up and you get out of yeah. bed in the morning. That's how you wake up in the morning. There's no, there's no, there's no magic pill. I'm not doing something different. I, my alarm clock doesn't, you know, send electrodes into my brain and stimulate thought early. In the, no, that doesn't happen. My freaking alarm clock goes off like everyone else's. And I put my feet on the ground. I get up, I get out of bed. There's things that I don't want to do. 
and I do them anyways, because you know it's it's the same with with anything. You know, I've I've written books now, right? I've written three books. I'm working on a fourth and a fifth right now. Now, do I feel like I'm a physically active person? I like to go outside. I like to do things outside. I like to surf. I like to work out. I like to do jujitsu. What I don't like to do is sit in front of a computer. But guess what? Those books don't write themselves. They, you have to write them. And so how do you do it? You open up your computer and you start typing words into the computer. And there's no other way to make it happen. And I don't like doing it. And it's not fun. And I sit down and do it. Okay, so that's something you don't enjoy doing. And I, after, you know, because I write for about an hour. Sometimes a little bit longer, sometimes a little bit shorter. But as soon as I'm done, I'm like, yes. So there's something that you can do. There's something you can put in your process. You can put in your process, learn what it feels like to be complete with something that you didn't want to do. Yeah. Learn what that feels like. Once you learn what that feels like, you can capitalize on it because in the beginning, when you don't feel like doing it, you go, okay, in an hour when I'm done with this, I'll feel good that I did it. And I'll tell you what, you write a thousand words a day and then you look up in a month and you've got 30,000 words. And in two months, you've got 60,000 words. That's a book. So it's the same thing with your, your physical fitness. In an hour, you're gonna feel better that you did what you wanted to do, what you know you were supposed to do. In an hour, you're gonna feel that way. And in a month, you're gonna be that, that much fitter all around. And, and it's the same thing with anything that you, you know what you wanna do, do it. And remember what that, or do it once on a short term, remember how good it feels to have done it. And then apply that to the, to the pre-action so that you know what it's gonna feel like when you're done. And when you're being lazy, tell yourself, okay, you know what? I'm not going to be lazy because in an hour, this is going to feel good that I just ran six miles or I just did a few hundred pull-ups or whatever it is that you want to do. Or I wrote a thousand words or I sent a bunch of emails or I went through a spreadsheet or I contacted my clients or whatever it is that you're trying to get done that you need to commit more to. So as a part of your process, just hearing what you're saying then, like you look at an outcome, like writing a book, 60,000 words. And then you say, well, if I just write for an hour a day, you know, in two months, I've got my book. So is that a part of your process when it comes to big missions and big objectives where you'll go, okay, if this is my mission, this is my objective, this is a big hard thing I want to do, I'm unstoppable, I'm going to do it anyway, but I'm just going to chunk it down. I'm going to break it down to the smallest component and I'll do that first. I'll feel good about it and then that's going to give me a little bit of leverage to then step into the next component. That is essentially what I'm telling you yeah. that people, if they want to do this, they should do. Yeah. You know what I do? I, I've, just, I'm just so over that process. Yeah. I, I already fundamentally know what it is. And I've said this many on many occasions it's like shooting a weapon when when you've been shooting for the last few days right and when you're shooting you you see your target in the distance that's your goal whatever that distant goal is well if you stare at that target it becomes blurry that's just what happens physiologically with your eyes so you have to look at the thing that's right in front of you the, the sights on the end of your weapon which are only three feet away and that you can focus on so it's the same thing with these these goals, right? If you got this goal that's so far off that you wanna you wanna buy a, a house, that's your goal. You wanna you wanna afford this nice house. It's gonna take you three years to save up the down payment and fix your credit and get the loan organized. It's gonna take a while to do this. And and after three or four or five or six days, you're sick of this work that you've been doing, and it's really easy for that for that long distance goal to fade. And so you just start. Ah, you know what? I'm not gonna do this today. And, and then you gotta focus back on the long-term goal and go, wait a minute, why am I doing this? It's cause this house, I wanna get this house. Okay, so then you see the long-term goal, but guess what? It's three years away. 
So that starts to become blurry again. And so now you lose focus on that. So now you focus again to something right in front of you. You know what I can do? I can get this task done. I can call this client. I can, whatever that immediate task, I can write these thousand words, whatever it is that you can do immediately to move towards that target, you do it. So you shift between the long distance target and the, the close range target. And I guess the payoff for that is you end up getting to a point where, where you are now, where you don't even contemplate that. You just fucking do it. Yeah. Yeah. And that takes time for some people. I'm going to ask you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if I was to say to myself, oh, I don't really feel like doing this today, at the back of my mind, I mean, I get like an immediate answer. That's like, yeah. Shh, be quiet yeah. and, and do, what you, do what you know you're supposed to do. So you've really trained your mind. Is it, but I'm, I'm assuming this has just happened naturally. This hasn't been yeah. something you've consciously Yeah, it's not something I've consciously done. Okay. So regulating stress and emotion, um, you know, one of the things that I love, uh, that I've really enjoyed learning about with the Navy SEALs, but also elite professional sports, is the, the stress regulation process and how you guys maintain incredibly high levels of composure. And one of the things I've observed is leaders typically experience very high levels of stress due to the responsibilities they shoulder. But in training, you guys are conditioned to be able to maintain incredibly high levels of composure and clarity under extreme physical, mental, and emotional stress. The levels of stress conditioning required that you, that you guys are able to do exceeds most, if not all, professional sports to me because of the extremely high risk, the imminent threat to life. But when you also add the, you know, the, 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 the percussion of weapon systems being deployed, which activates you know, parts of our brain that have been primarily wired to respond and produce stress, you know, it's, it's really quite incredible. So the question I want to start with is why is this kind of composure important to you? Like in, in a situation as a SEAL, you're in deployment. Why is composure so important? Because if you're getting emotional at critical times, you're not going to make good decisions. If you don't make good decisions, you're either going to get yourself killed or you're going to get your people killed. And it, by the way, this isn't just the SEAL teams. This yeah. is this is the Marine Corps. This is the Army. This is this is anybody that's on the ground and, and Air Force guys in the sky that are that are up there. And they've got a lot of stress going on. They're searching for targets. It's it's a stressful environment. And so it's not just in the SEAL teams that we have to learn how to deal with this kind of stress. Well, I go as far as to say it's not just in the military either. Like, because when you look at business, you know, as an, you know, and I think, you know, you have a very strong relationship with business because of your leadership position, right? But one of the things that I've observed that prevents a lot of people becoming very successful in business is stress. You know, stress happens as a result of a failure, which is very common in business because that's how we grow. You know, accidents, mistakes, you know, they're very common as a, as a business owner, especially if you're pursuing... What was the first thing you said? Stress comes from... Uh, like, failure. Oh, failure. failure. Okay, I just couldn't hear you. That's all right. Yeah. It could be my accident. So it can come from failure, it can come from mistakes, it can come from accidents. But one of the things I've observed, you know, being in business for a long time and training you know, a lot of people in business, is stress is very common in business. You know, people deal with stress on a regular basis, but people deal with stress very differently. And one of the things I've observed is stress makes people really stupid. You know, when people are under stress, they do some stupid shit. No doubt. It's, it's as bad as, you know, almost being you know, completely intoxicated. So what I find interesting is the kind of composure that you guys have learned is actually not just practical in a high risk, you know, uh, combat battle environment, but it's also really practical, you know, from a business perspective, you know, because if you, you might not have bullets zinging past your heads or mortars going off, but you might have, you know, fires in the fires going off and people leaving and, you know, unhappy clients that, you know, can provoke in some instances, I won't say the same levels of stress, but stress all the same that can make people stupid. So what I'm curious to know is how can we take some of the lessons that you guys have learned around composure and apply that to, you know, perhaps the business world, or even, it's not even just an entrepreneur, you know, being a mother or a father, you know, to a, to a, to a young child or even a fucking teenager can be quite stressful. How do we take that kind of composure and apply it in, you know, the real world? It's absolutely practical. And here's what you do. 
So what you need to do is you need to start to identify what I call the red flags of stress, which are indications that you're starting to get stressed out, your stress level starting to go up. So whether it is you start talking with a louder voice or whether it's you start feeling your face turning red or you start getting hot or you start you start squeezing your hands, you start feeling your, your hands start to squeeze or if you're typing on a computer, you start typing really hard as you're sending someone an email, right? Those are things that should tell you that you're starting to get stressed out. I was talking to uh, a group of law enforcement officers the other day and I was talking about if you go on YouTube and you watch some of these uh, shooting situations, shooting scenarios, you listen to the cop's voice and the cop is going, uh, get out, get out, get out, get out. They're yelling like that. Are, are they emotionally calm? Or, no, they're not. So you gotta listen to yourself. You gotta, you gotta be aware of the reaction that you're having. You gotta see those as, as, as red flags, as indicators that you are now getting stressed out. And then what you have to do is you have to detach from that. I talk about this all the time because this is one of the this is one of the best tools that you can have as a leader, as a person in a stressful situation, is you've got to be able to, to detach from that, to step away from the chaos, to step away from the mayhem, to step back from your emotions so that you can then make good decisions. Now, in the SEAL teams, the way I taught it was the, the leader is carrying a gun. And as a firefight is happening, you align yourself with the other guys that are shooting and you start to shoot. And that way you can put down fire at the enemy. And, and like you said, you're surrounded by this concussion then. And as you're looking down the, the scope of your weapon, your, your frame of reference becomes very, very narrow because you're just looking at your front sight and you're shooting. And, and that's not good. And so what I would teach these guys is from a leadership perspective, you actually take your weapon and you put it to high port, meaning you point your weapon at the sky because you're not gonna shoot anybody. And then you take two steps or three steps back off of this line of guys that are shooting. And then you physically turn your head to the left and to the right. And you look around and you actually assess what is really happening. So you remove yourself from that stress, stressful situation. Even if it's only a foot or two feet. I've, I've said this before in, in businesses. Oh, you've got a stressful meeting going on? Stand up from the, from the, from the table. Stand up and step back from it and let everyone else sit there and argue for a minute. And you'll see that as soon as you step back from this chaos that's ensuing, you'll have incredibly more visibility on what's actually happening. And so once you learn this ability to, number one, detect what your red flags of stress are, and then number two, detach and set them aside, and then you're going to be able to make better decisions. Because once you step back from, from a stressful conversation, from a stressful combat situation or from a stressful business environment, once you learn to detach from that, you can see everything and you can make much clearer, much more accurate decisions. So that kind of composure can be learned? Yes, you, you can learn it. Not everyone can learn it. Yeah. Some people, you know, they, they refuse to learn it, but it can definitely be learned. And I've, I've taught it many, many times, uh, both in the business world and, and in the combat world. I mean, preparing guys for combat, that's what we would do. We would put them under such immense stress. And then I'd go over and tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, come on, stop shooting. Put, point, point your weapon at the sky. Step back with me. Now look around. You see this? You see what's happening? What should everyone do? Uh, we should move to the left. Okay, tell them to move to the left. Everyone move to the left. Guess what? We've got our solution. And this is something that the person never would have saw with, seen when they were embroiled in that, in that situation. 
So, and it's the same thing in the business world. I see it with, with people are in a meeting and you know, they, people start getting riled up or there's an escalation in a, in a discussion. And a bad business leader is gonna, you know, you say a negative comment to me, I'm gonna say it back to you, you come back at me stronger. Next thing you know, we're not making a decision and we're not making progress because we're just yelling at each other. And if I was to step back immediately and just de-escalate and say, you know what, let me think about your point of view for a second. So, so let, me, let me make sure I got this right because I, 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 this is important and I wanna make sure I'm interpreting what you're saying. So what you're saying is A, B, and C. Is that, so as soon as I do that, I've de-escalated instead of getting in your face and saying, no, it's not ABC, no, you're wrong. No, 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 wait, I'm gonna de-escalate that thing. And as soon as we do that, we can have a real conversation, we can make a better decision. Okay, so you're saying in stressful situations, we need to detach, step back and have a look around. How important is breathing? You know, breathing is one of these things, if, if that's something that aids you, it's not something that I've thought about a lot. Uh, that being said, when you're in a stressful situation in combat, you never want to sound panicked on the radio. And so one of the key factors for me to always remain calm was never to escalate my voice and sound like I was losing control. Because there's a bigger, a huge difference to your team if you say, hey, I need everyone over here in this building right now. You just sent, you just spiked everyone's emotions. Now you got a whole team of people that aren't making good decisions. Whereas if you get on the radio and say, Hey, everyone's Jocko. We need everyone in building 34 at this time. Move. Everyone goes, okay, well, Jocko's got this under control. I'm going to move to building 34. There's a huge difference. So it's not so much about breathing as it is about maintaining a good, solid, calm tone of voice. Same thing you hear a pilot, right? You hear a pilot that's in an airliner and the airliner's got some kind of trouble. That guy's not calling, Tower, this is flight 792. We got engine out. No. They get on the same, this is 792. We got an engine out. We're going to be coming in for an early landing. How copy over. That's what they're doing. The why they're doing that is because they're going to keep their crew calm. They're keeping themselves calm so that they can do their job. And they've trained to do that. And this is so important, especially for business owners, because most people, most business owners, when the shit hits the fan, they're exactly that. Voice escalates, they start yelling at everyone, and then it goes from being one stressed person to stressing out everyone in the entire organization. So well, when I raise my voice and start yelling at you, how, how open are you to thinking that I am making good rational choices? Well, not at all. Not at all. My trust is gone. Like Your trust is gone. Yeah. I can't control myself. How can I control you? How can I control this situation? I'm, you Clearly, I'm making emotional decisions. So the minute you start to show emotions the, is the minute that you start losing respect. Now, does that mean you're supposed to be void of emotions? Not at all. Because if I come into you and I say, hey, Kerwin, uh, we lost money last quarter. I need you to go ahead and fire 28 people. Let me know when it's done, right? Do you want to work for me? Do you want to work for me? No. No, you don't want to work for me. I'm a jerk and I, and I have no emotions. Now, if I come in and say, hey, this is what's going on, Kerwin. This is the situation we're in. We lost money again last quarter and I'm looking at where we're at and I'm seeing where we're going and it's not good. And we have basically one opportunity right now to right this ship and we gotta do it, we're gonna have to make some hard, hard cuts. And we gotta come up with a list of names, I'm looking at about 30 people that we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to move out, and that's the way it's gotta be. I know it's gonna be tough, and I'm here, and if you want me to do it, I'll do it. But you've been their leader for a while, I think it'd be 
they'd respect it more and they'd, they'd be more open to hearing it from you. But I will be in every meeting if you need me to, or I'll do it myself if you don't want to do it. But this is what we got to do. And you know what? If we want to save the other 380 people that we got here, we're going to have to sacrifice some of them as hard as that is. That's the move we got to make. Otherwise, this whole ship could go down. And I don't, I don't want to have that happen. So, right? Big difference there. Yeah. Big difference. So I'm not saying be void of emotions. I'm saying control your emotions, make sure you're not panicking, make sure you're not raising your voice and getting crazy because people don't respect that. There are some people who are listening to this podcast who might be thinking, well, you know, in order for me to be have a happy life, I need to find the ways to minimize stress in my life. I need to remove stress from my life, which to me is, you know, it's 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 complete it's delusional. Like because who at, at what point are we ever going to be void of you know, being able to control every situation, circumstance, and person in our life to be able to prevent any stressful thing from happening. You know, my perspective is, you know, stress is just going to happen. That's a natural part of life. You know, Buddha said it great. He said, life is pain, suffering is optional. And I look at stress as, you know, life is stressful, but the, yeah. our, our, whether we choose to, su- whether we suffer or not is, from my perspective, it's a choice. I'm just curious if you subscribe to that kind of a theory. Yes, if you wanted to remove all stress from your life, you would, there would be no progression. You would be... Just in a, in a so really stress serves an important purpose. Right, you're gonna you're gonna yeah. progress. I mean, in your business, or if you're in a, bi- a business situation, and you're trying to grow, and you're trying to expand, and you're trying to get more clients, or manufacture more widgets, or whatever it is that you're trying to do, all those things are gonna create stress, and, and that's the way it is. And and so yeah, I, I absolutely think that stress is something that you have to learn how to deal with for sure. Nice. I've heard you say before, the key to freedom is discipline Mm. and structure. Yes, I have said that. Uh, What does that mean? Well, if, you know, freedom is what everyone wants. And discipline has a pretty negative connotation to it because people think of getting in trouble. People think of disciplining children that have been out of line. People think that prisoners are being disciplined for some bad behavior, and all those things are contrary to freedom, right? Which is, I would, I get to do whatever I want. But from everything that I have seen, if you actually want to have freedom in your life, the only way to get there is actually through discipline. And so the examples I talk about all the time are, number one, financial freedom. Everyone wants financial freedom. Well, how do you get financial freedom? You have to have financial discipline. You have to work hard. You have to save your money. You have to not buy things that you don't actually need and instead take that money and investment, invest it into things that are going to be productive for you financially. So in order to have financial freedom, you have to have financial discipline. The other classic example that I talk about all the time is free time. Everybody wants to have more free time. Of course, we're going to have more free time. How do you get more free time? You have more discipline. You have a more disciplined time management schedule. You have more discipline in saying no to things that aren't productive in your life because we say yes to things and they all they do is eat up our time and they don't give us anything in the end. And, and a really obvious example of that is YouTube, right? The internet, right? But YouTube specifically because when you watch one video that you wanted to see on YouTube, They've programmed this thing, right? A rack of new videos comes up. And those videos are so incredibly specifically targeted to know and understand your brain and know what videos there's almost no way you could resist wanting to watch. 
And so you click on that next video. And when that video ends, another rack of videos comes up. And those are also specifically engineered to make you want to watch them and make you think that this could be the video that actually changes your life right here. This could be the one. And so you click on that one. And the next thing you know, you've wasted, you know, 47 minutes of your time watching videos that have had no impact on you or not going to help you in any way. And, and, and by the way, they, they devolve and take you into a, a, a much less meaningful place the longer you watch them for. And so those are things. If you want to have more free time, you need to have the discipline to say no to the things that aren't actually productive in your life. And it's the same thing with just about anything that, that human beings want to have freedom around. You know, if you want physical freedom to move around and to, to be active, well, then you have to have the discipline to, to exercise and to eat properly. Uh, if you want to have freedom in your team, then you actually have to have a disciplined team that knows and understands the procedures and knows and understands the expectations and won't go outside the bounds of what they're supposed to do. And, and once, they're, once they have that discipline, you can go and let them run. You can let them run wild because they're gonna stay within the bounds of what they're supposed to be doing. So that's why the, the phrase discipline equals freedom is very, very powerful. And a lot of people wanna to skip to the freedom mm. and you can't do that, it doesn't work. Do you think it, when discipline is applied for extended periods of time, it actually allows life to become a little bit more effortless? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, well, absolutely. Why, why is that? Well, because the more discipline you impose on your life, the more freedom you actually end up having. Yeah. You know, you know the classic example, which I told my, I've told my children, is look at, a, look at a, per, a homeless bum person on the street, right? I'm not saying all of them. Some people tragically have hard circumstances, and I'm not talking about them, but, but many people that are on the streets bums, homeless, they, they got there in an effort to find freedom, right? They, oh, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm not gonna go to that job again. You know what I'm gonna do instead? I'm gonna drink booze or I'm gonna do this drug because I'm free, I'm gonna do whatever I want. And you fast forward down that train and you end up in the street. Now, now you're a slave. You've gotta beg for money, you've gotta beg for food. You're a slave to the bottle, you're a slave to the needle. You're a slave now. Your effort to be free actually resulted in slavery. Now, on the other end of that, a good example is you take, you know, either someone that worked very hard, was highly disciplined, saved their money, and by the time they go down that road, depending on when they decide to make that transition in their life, they can do whatever they want. They can be very, very free. And so the discipline in the beginning will end up with more freedom in the end, and the lack of discipline in the beginning will end up with, with less freedom in the end. So I think those are real obvious examples. So you have four kids, what ages? 17, 16, 14, and eight. Okay, so we have a lot of people in our community that are parents, you know, they're involved awesome. in families. Uh, and a question I often get, get asked is, how do, I, how do I provide a framework of discipline and structure for my kids so that they will become healthy, you know, healthy adults? Because I can relate to, like, even just the story you're talking about before. Um, you know, I, ever since I was a little kid, I didn't want to be told what to do. I wanted to have freedom. I wanted to be able to do whatever I want. So by age 19, I was addicted to drugs. You know, age 21, I'm, I'm sorting myself out, getting my life back in order. But what I've realized is, like, in order for me to live a healthy life, I need solid structure. I need solid boundaries. I need really strong routines so that I know exactly what I'm doing when I'm doing it, you know, so that I don't get bored because boredom for me can be quite dangerous. But what I get, what I find really interesting is for kids, like these days, a lot of parents don't know how to, you know, because I, I remember, like, I even shared this as a post, you know, when I was young, I, I used to get, 
what is it? I grew up being spanked, and as a result, I suffer from a condition called, you know, respect for my elders. You know, now when people consider spanking their children, even now, like I think of spanking my, my four-year-old son, I can't. Like it's in my head, it doesn't compute. So how do we provide structure and discipline to kids without being physically dominating and breaking their spirit at the same time? Well, the physical and mental imposition of discipline are both very things that you need to be very careful with. Because any time that you impose, so the discipline I've been talking about is self-discipline, mm-hmm. right? That's that, that, There's a key yeah. difference there. Now, I, for the purposes of just, since I talk about it all the time, I, I just call it discipline. But the reality is it's self-discipline. Imposed discipline is something that's very different. And most people, most human beings, don't react very well to imposed discipline. And so kids are a classic example. And when you begin to impose discipline on your children, well, you can end up creating ultra-level 12 rebellious children. And so you have to be very careful with imposing discipline on your kids. And it's the same, just the same way that you have to be very careful imposing discipline on your employees if you're a boss. And so what is the difference here? How do you actually do that? What you do is you have to lead in both situations. You don't just impose discipline on people. You have to lead them. And there's a huge difference. And even in the military, I wasn't just imposing my rules and my missions and, and the way I wanted things on the guys that worked for me. Far from it. Far from it. What I was saying was like, hey, this is what we want to get done how do you actually think we should do this? And that way they're, they're actually coming up with the ideas and now it's their idea instead of my idea. And now they're going to take that thing and they're going to run with it and they're going to champion it. Now, maybe their idea was a little bit off of what mine and maybe I had to bring them back a little bit, but it's still their idea. Now, if they were to say something that was completely off base from what I thought, well, then I might have to have a discussion with them. And by the way, when we have a discussion, you're either going to agree with me because I'm right Or maybe I have to adapt my viewpoint a little bit because maybe you're a little bit right. And so now I have to say, you know what? Okay, let's adapt this. It's still something that you believe in. It's still something that you're going to champion. So I think you have to, with children, you have to be very careful with how you impose discipline. If if you're imposing discipline on people, you can crush their creativity, which, which is bad. You can also create mutinies because human beings don't like to be controlled. They want to have self control. And, and that's, again, that goes with children, that goes with employees. So I always tried to, with my kids, explain to them why things were important, why it's important to do well in school. You know, not just because I said so, because that's, that's not going to, that's not going to work. It has to, they have to, they have to connect it to something. They have to connect it to getting a good job, which connects to, or getting into a good college, which connects to getting a good job, which connects to making good money, which connects to having more freedom when you get older, right? As opposed to do this because I said so. Well, it's also going to connect to what do I see my dad doing? Well, for sure. Yeah. For sure. So I'm, I'm curious because, you know, you've led, you know, SEAL teams under incredibly stressful and in high-risk situations, uh, and then you became a dad. Mm-hmm. Was there, were there any major lessons that you learned in terms of the distinguishing features between how to lead a SEAL team versus how to lead your kids? The biggest, they're the same. They're the same. There's one big difference, which I'll tell, I'll tell you. I was, uh, first I'll tell you this. I was with, when my oldest daughter was maybe turning nine years old, we went to the beach and had a party with her and her, all a bunch of her friends. And after a little while of them playing around, I was like, okay, we're going to do something. We're gonna have some fun. So 
I got them in organized into two squads. I marched them down to the beach, this little river mouth, and I started doing competitions, team versus team. And you know, we're doing, hey, you got to get across the river and back, and then you got to get, a, you got to build a tower. Whoever can build the tower, the tallest tower with the rocks, and then whoever can get the, that whole tower to the other side of the river. Just all these different challenging games. And what I realized in these two squads, after 20 minutes, in these two squads of, of nine-year-old girls or eight-year-old girls, whatever they were at the time. I see all the same personalities that you'd see in a squad of SEALs. There was the girl that wanted to win 100%. She was going to do anything she could. The girl that didn't care. The girls that were going to support the leader. The girls that were saying this was stupid. They were all there. They were all there. So, and that's what you end up with. You end up with human beings and human beings can fall into these categories and they'll be nuanced and they're all a little bit crazy. All of us are going to do things a little bit crazy and, and those crazy things that they do, as unpredictable as they are, are actually also at the same time very predictable because especially if you know that these crazy things are going to happen and that, that they're, and you can predict the unpredictability, you can be more ready for them. So you're dealing with the same thing with these, when you're, when you're trying to get a team to execute things and to do things in the most efficient and the most effective manner for that team and for the individuals on that team, it's the same thing that you're doing with a family when you're trying to get that team and the individuals on that team to do the things that are gonna be best for them. The biggest difference between the two is that this conversation that we just had about emotional detachment is infinitely easier, easier with an employee, with a team member, with whoever, than it is with your child. Yeah. That more than anything else, you want them to follow this path that you know is the right path for them. You know it. You know it's the right path for them. You know 100% it's the right path for them. And let's face it, if you could put a child on the path that you wanted them to get on and you, 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 carved out that perfect track for them, you could have your child a billionaire by age, right? 30, right? Right? I mean, we could do we could do that. We could put them on this path, study this and do this and save this, and you could put them on that path. You could do it. And you could get them on this perfect path. The problem is they're not going to want to be on that path. And that's the hard thing is that you know exactly what they should do. You know exactly how they should do it. And if you try and force them onto that path, they're going to want nothing more than to get off that path because they are human beings with free will. And so what you need to try and do is not set down a track for them to be on, but set down some broad guardrails to keep them in the right general area with the mobility, because that's another thing. You, if you put on, them on that track, they will end up not knowing how to deviate. They won't know how to overcome any obstacles, because I should, you know, you could, you could design a really good path, right, for people, but what it, I, I misspoke, because you couldn't actually predict the things that are gonna happen in the future that they aren't gonna expect. So if you carve the whole path for them and you put them on it and they hit a bump, they're gonna fall apart. So you want them to have mobility. You want them to be able to move around. You want them to be able to adapt the things that are gonna happen. You want all those things. If you clear the path for them, they're never gonna have that resilience that they're gonna need. They're gonna have the adaptability. They're not gonna have the creativity and they're gonna be a robot which is gonna fall apart as soon as they as soon as the world shifts a little bit and they're not ready for it. So, and what's hard about this is that you emotionally want to give them the best life and you know what that should be and you try and force it on them. The more you force it on them, the harder, the, the, the more they're going to reject it, unfortunately. Mm. So 
for someone who maybe thinks to, is listening to this and going, well, fuck, maybe I need some more discipline in my life, you know, uh, maybe I should start with me before I even look at my kids. What does discipline look like? What does structure look like in everyday living for people who perhaps haven't been through the military and don't maybe know, maybe they've never done martial arts, maybe they've never had a really serious hobby or, you know, been involved in competitive sports. What does discipline look like in everyday life? What discipline looks like in everyday life is the things that you know that you're supposed to do and the things that you know that you should do, you do them. That's what it looks like. Like if you wrote down what you should do tomorrow, tonight, if you wrote down those six things that you know would be good for you tomorrow, I'm going to wake up at this time. I'm going to work out at this time. I'm going to eat these good foods. I'm going to execute this stuff at work. And, and I write these things down and then I wake up the next day and I do them. Regardless of how I feel, regardless of my motivation, regardless of what other things come up, regardless of my own mental weakness, I just do the things that I'm supposed to do. That's what discipline looks like. That, that's what discipline looks like. And, and at the end of the day, I promise you, I, I promise you, a 100% promise, that's pretty strong, right? A 100% promise, if you wake up and you do the things that you know you should do in your life, by the end of the day, you'll, you'll feel better. It's, it's really interesting. It's like a magic pill. It's like a magic pill. Like a magic do what you're supposed to yeah. do. Do the things that are good. Do the things that are going to improve your life instead of the other things, which don't improve your life, which waste time, which waste money, which, which don't move you in the direction you want to be moving. Do you, do you make your bed every morning? I do. Yeah. Do you think that's a good place to start? I think it's fine. You know, and I'll tell you for, for many, many years, I never made my bed because I slept with a poncho liner. And for me, making bed was a waste of time because I was going to get in it, you know, <laughs> 20, 21 hours later, I was getting back in it. So I'm not going to, that was just a waste of time to me. And you know, if I was going to make it, I'd shake my poncho liner one time and we were good. But yeah, sure. Make your bed, brush your teeth, floss. One of the things I love about um, following you on social media, like you're, you're, you know, you're very active on Twitter. You've got a huge Twitter following. It's great to see how your Facebook has kicked off in the last 12 months with you doing live video. But one of the things I love every day is your your discipline that you demonstrate to the world, like your, the leadership that you demonstrate to the world every day. Like every day when I wake up and I check my Twitter, one of the first things I see is a photograph of your G-Shock. I think it's a G-Shock watch. It's actually a Timex. A Timex, I apologize. It's part of your Timex. Um, with the numbers somewhere between 4.30 and 4.35. How important is a morning routine when it comes to setting up the day? I think it's pretty important. Yeah. I think it's pretty important. If you, again, if you were to go and and write down the things that you should do tomorrow that are going to make you successful yeah. and make your life better, step number one wouldn't be sleep until 10.30 in the morning. Step number one wouldn't even be 9.30 in the morning. Step number one would be get up get up sometime early because it gives you such a good jump start on the, on everybody else it gives you it's, it's a great it's great time of the morning no one can bother you who else is up at 4 30 in the morning to bother you not too many people and you do this everywhere in the world regardless of whatever time zone the time zone that you're in you wake up at 4 30 a.m that time zone yes yes when you're in your now i imagine that might require an alarm clock depend with the amount of travel that you might do but is that such a strong part of your life that when you're in your normal everyday life you're maybe not traveling like, do you just wake up at 4.29 every morning or is it, do you still need an alarm? I would say I'm probably 50% alarm and 50% nature. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and 
Yeah, sometimes I stay up too late too. And so then I know I'm going to probably need an alarm. Okay. And I don't, interestingly, I don't sleep really well if I don't have an alarm. Because I think I'm just going to be asleep for a really long time and, and I don't like it. Like I, I wake up every yeah, half an hour going, Moot, what did I miss? Yeah, okay. I wake up saying, what kind of an idiot gets out of bed at 8 <laughs> o'clock in the morning? <laughs> Look, I'm going to assume, I only know from the stories that I've heard and what I've read that, you know, you've you've lost a lot of great friends, you know, brothers, in, you know, in the profession that, you, that you're in and even friends and guys that you train that are still serving. You know, I, I know even only a few months ago, I think you lost another 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 brother but what i'm curious to know is you know death teaches everyone different things and some philosophers and religions um say that in order to truly live we must first die uh, i'm just curious to know like what have what has what have you learned from death i know it's a morbid question but i i think it's a big one uh yeah what have i learned from death time is short Time is short, and the time that you've got here is precious, and you better make the most of it. You get one shot, and it could be all over tomorrow, and so you better you better make the most of the time that you've got here. So I'm curious to know, like, up until when you joined the military, had you ever lost a friend? Have you had a lost a Yes, I had. As a matter of fact, just after I joined the military, okay. I, I, a, a really good friend of mine actually killed himself. I'm sorry yeah, yeah, which was, which was very very bizarre to me, you know, to hear that a guy, a good friend of mine who had gone down the wrong path in life and he killed himself. And so, yeah, I mean, I, so I was not super familiar with death, Okay. but. And how long did it take after you joined the military before you actually started to experience like mortality and, and realize that it was a, a constant? I had some guys get, you know, cause I joined in 1990 yeah. and the, you know, the war didn't kick off until 2001 so there was 11 years where there was no war going on and we hey, i had a couple of good friends that 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 were killed in some kind of training accidents right. and and so you know it's it's uh does it change you like does it change your perspective on life because i know you came well, into the military like you were already hardwired to do this job but i'm curious if this shift if flicked the switch made you look at life differently in any way that made you behave and show up in perhaps a different way i think the same thing i just said when you realize that you know when you're young so you had that as a conscious realization like that life is precious more more from the war when guys would get killed in training accidents it was horrible yeah uh but yeah even even those guys you know you think to yourself all right well i'm going to try and take advantage of the the life that i've got while i'm here on this planet do you find that that looks like you express a lot more affection towards your family on a more regular basis. I was talking to Mark earlier and I was had the same conversation. He said, I said, how has it changed you? Because, well, I never leave the house before without going around to everyone in the house and saying goodbye. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not there. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not there. Um, I, you know, I think it's, it's something, that, I, I think it's something that drives you to try and, to try and, you know, do your best with your life because the guys that you know that didn't come home from war they don't have that opportunity yeah and and that's that's something that they gave they gave their lives and 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 they gave their lives to us really to us mm. to go and live and we better take advantage of every second we've got 
you've been through, through some incredible shit, like the Battle of Ramadi. I got that right, didn't I? The Battle yeah. of Ramadi, you know, was supposed to, was, well, from what I've read, it was like one of the most intense battles uh, of that war. I'm curious to know, like, have you ever been in a situation where you actually contemplated, holy shit, I actually might die today? Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you're, if you, anyone, anyone that was in the Battle of Ramadi, yeah. when you left the wire and you were rolling out to down one of the streets in a, in a vehicle, everyone, every single person knew that there was some percentage chance that you could get blown up and you get killed, you get shot by a sniper, you get killed. Absolutely. Everyone knew that. But have you ever been in a situation where like you're under heavy fire, you know, you perhaps, you know, there's maybe guys taking casualties and you're like, holy shit, like this is, we get mortared, you get yeah. shot, you get machine gun rounds going overhead. Yeah. So what goes in those situations when that's happening and like the imminent threat of death is right there and that's when you have to perform, like what runs through your head in order to, you know, keep going? It's the same thing. It's, it's, it's well, it's, it's also detachment. Yeah. You know what? Hey, there's mortars hitting the other side of this wall. Okay, what am I going to do? Sit here and panic or am I going to do my job? Because mm. I can't control the mortars. I mean, I've got overhead cover, I can move to overhead cover, or I'm in a vehicle and it might get blown up by an ID. Okay, well, what are we gonna do now? N not drive down the road? No, we're gonna do what we have to do. And, and there's a chance that that can happen. And you know, that was one of the, the way Ramadi was set up, when you drove towards, when you drove towards the gate to leave Camp Ramadi and go out into the city of Ramadi, you would drive past what was called the vehicle graveyard, which was this, which was this, you know, big, basically looked like a junkyard, but it was just filled with probably, I don't know, 75 or a hundred vehicles that had been destroyed by IEDs and countless men had been killed inside those vehicles. And that's what you saw when you were going out. So you had to recognize that that was a reality of something that could happen. And then you needed to move beyond it. But as a leader, like that adds another element when you look at morale, you know, because most businesses, as an example, you know, they might have a, a, a bad week or a bad quarter and they lose a few customers and morale is down or they lose a few team members and morale is down. Um, or, you know, or they're having a bad quarter and morale is down. Like in, in that situation, you know, you've got guys where you lose a few lives. You know, I can only imagine that must affect morale. So in those situations, like how do you maintain the morale that's required in order to complete the mission? Well, obviously it affects morale when you lose guys, absolutely. And then what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? Are you going to say, okay guys, uh, let's let's stop what we're doing. Let's, let's stop what we're doing and, and surrender? No, no. And the guys wouldn't accept that. And so what you do is you mourn and you grieve and you say goodbye to your friends. Mm. And then you lock and load your weapons and you go out and you get after it. So is mourning and grieving an important part of the process? Yeah. 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 And I, I think, I don't know if I've read before that Americans don't do a great job. Other, other cultures have sort of a set, this is what you do when someone dies. You mourn for this period, you have your thing, you do this thing, everyone does this thing, and then it's, then it's wrapped and now you, you move on. And Americans aren't great. I think in the SEAL teams, we've un unfortunately, we've we've experienced uh, so many casualties that I think we actually have gotten to a point where we do have a process that we go through. And you know, there's there's services, there's traditions, and then we are able to move on. 
And I think, I mean, obviously the whole, the whole U.S. military has gone through that, uh, you know, because again, we you know, people talk about the SEAL teams for whatever reason, but the SEAL teams are a, a part of this giant organization of the U.S. military that has fought and sacrificed incredibly over the last, well, over the last several hundred years, but in the last, you know, 15 years since the war started, it's not just SEALs. And, and I, don't, I don't want everyone, anyone to ever think that, you know, we're sitting here thinking, oh, it's the SEALs, it's the SEALs. It's not, you know, yeah, we got our group, but we're not, the, the rest of the military goes through, has suffered incredibly and, and has gone through the same process of learning how to move through these incredible losses, which every single one of them is, is an absolute travesty. Mm. Extreme ownership um, is a concept you talk about in leadership. In fact, you, you wrote the book, Extreme Ownership. What is extreme ownership? Extreme ownership is the attitude and the mindset that you're not going to blame anyone else when things go wrong, or you're not going to blame anything else when things go wrong. You're going to take ownership of the problems and you're going to get them solved. That book, um, I, I think, is probably one of, the, one of my top five books of all time that I've read, which is a big compliment because I've read a lot of books. Um, Thank you. But one of the things I loved about it was that it addressed something that is such a, an incredibly big problem, not just in business, but in life in general, where people just want to blame others for the situation they're in, not really realizing that they're giving the power away for controlling their destiny by actually doing that. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you've seen leaders make when it comes to being a leader? Well, that's the biggest one, and you just summed it up very nicely, so I appreciate that. The, the biggest mistake that we see is you see someone that says, oh, you know, we had a bad quarter. It's because the sales team did this. It's because the market did that. It's because our competitor did this. And and all three of those things that I just said, the the sales team, the market, the competitor. So so what are you going to do to fix those things? Because it's not my fault. It's the sales team's fault. It's the competitor's fault. It's the market's fault. Those 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 none of those statements lead to a solution. Whereas someone saying, I didn't lead the sales team correctly, and here's what I'm going to do to get it fixed. Or I didn't predict the market well enough, and this is what I'm going to do. This is the angle we're going to take. This is the maneuver we're going to make to get back ahead of the market. Or the competitor did something that we didn't foresee, and now we are going to adjust, adapt, react, and we're going to take them by storm. All those are, that's what we want. And you can only do that if you actually take ownership of the problem instead of blaming everyone else or something else in, in, in all those situations. Why is that such a big pill for so many people to swallow? Ego. Very simply, ego. And when you say ego, what do you mean? Meaning, I don't want to take the blame. I want to blame the sales team because it hurts me to take the blame. For me to say, well, we lost money last quarter. That's my fault. No one wants to say that. Nobody wants to say that. Our egos prevent us from, from taking the blame for things, for taking ownership of things. And that's why it's very problematic. And that's the biggest hurdle to overcome in taking ownership is saying to yourself, okay, this is my fault. And that does hurt my ego. And the other piece of it is, if you're my sales leader and I come into you and I say, hey, Kerwin, here's the deal. I didn't provide you guys with good guidance. Here's the mistakes I made as a leader. This is what I'm gonna do to get you guys turned around this next quarter. In my mind, I might think that you're thinking, oh, oh, now you're looking at me like I'm a bad leader because I said that. 
The opposite is actually true. This is the hard thing to understand. The opposite is actually true. If I came in and I said, Kerwin, you guys screwed up last quarter. You're pathetic. You need to square your stuff away. What do you think of me? You think, oh, you're a crappy leader. What are you talking about? You didn't even tell us what you want us to do. You didn't make any adjustments to the market. You didn't give us any good guidance. That's what you're thinking. You're mad at me. You don't respect me. But in my mind, I did good. I, I protected my ego by blaming you. And, and actually what I do is I make myself look worse in your eyes. Whereas if I came in and I said, hey, I think I really let you guys down last quarter. I didn't give you guys good guidance. I didn't give you any guys new product to get out there. And that's why we were hurting. And here's the things I want to do to fix it. And anything that you tell me you need, I'm going to provide it for you because I want you guys to go out there and kick ass. Now, do you look at me as less of a leader? Absolutely not. You actually want to work for me. You want to perform well. You, you're going to go tell your guys we're going to, we're going to crush this because Jocko's got our back and, and we want to make him look good and we want to support the team. So people lose track of that and they, they think that protecting their ego makes them look better to everyone else, but it actually makes them look worse. Okay. And so how does someone now use, like deploy that when they're like, well, fuck, okay. Because for some people, they'll hear that and they'll try and use it. But at, the, at first, when they use it, and I've seen this in action, it'll be a concept. It won't be, it'll be, okay, well, I've been told I have to take the blame mm. for this. Yeah, yeah. How do you transition someone from just using this as a concept to it becoming embodied as a part of who you are? Yeah, I get, I, so I get asked, I got to ask this, you know, I don't know, six months ago. I said, hey, you know, you take the blame for stuff. And I said, you know, your sales team, they're not going to look at you and say, yeah, it is your fault. That's right. No, they're going to say, no, boss, we need to do something better. And this guy does, no, you know what? My sales team, if I say that to my sales leader, you know what he's going to say? He's going to say, you're right. It is your fault. And he was all surprised. He was all like, you know, throwing this in my face. What do you think? How do you think I responded to that? What do you think I said? I said, well, yeah, you would agree. It was your fault. That's exactly what I said. Yeah. I said, oh, you know why I told you to say it was your fault? Because it was your fault. I'm not saying this to get yourself out of the problem. Yeah. I'm saying you say this because yeah. it's actually your fault. You are the leader. The sales team that works for you didn't perform the way you wanted them to. That is not their fault. It's your fault. You didn't coach them. You didn't mentor them. You didn't give them the right market predictions. You didn't step in early enough and get them on the right track. I'm saying it actually is your fault. I'm not saying this to to so that you can protect your feelings. So there's a reality behind this. This isn't just lip service to say, oh yeah, we, we performed poorly last quarter. It's all my fault, guys, my fault. And now let's move on. No, 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 my fault. Here's the problems. Here's the mistakes I made. Here's what I'm gonna do to fix them. Or here's the problems that we made as a team. And I allowed them to happen because I'm in charge. When you're in charge, you are at fault. So when someone throws that back in your face, what you do is you say, yes, I know. That's why I just said that. And here's what I want to do to fix it. So it's extreme ownership in two parts. Part one is you have to be willing to accept ownership for every single creation in your space. And part two, you also have to be willing to do something about it. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Because yes. there are some people who would be like, well, I can take responsibility well, for everything. Well, actually, it's funny. We, we joke about this. There's something in the SEAL teams, which is sort of close to extreme ownership it's the it's what you're talking about it's the extreme ownership concept and it's a real like if something just kind of a small mistake happens somebody like somebody will say my bust meaning hey that's my bust that's my that's my, my fault but then they expect it just to go away so you know someone will do something mistake hey, hey that was my hey my bust and then they think everything's good like you can just say my bust and then you're covered yeah. but you actually need to say it's hey my bust 
Here's what I, here's the mistake I made, and here's what I'm gonna do to fix it. You can't just say, hey, uh, yeah, my boss, that was my boss. Oh, okay, well, you're good. You took the blame. Now, now we're good. We're gonna let it go. No, we're not gonna let it go. You, you, you made a mistake. How are you gonna fix it? Because that's actually the biggest challenge that I've seen people when it comes to integrating the concept. Because I see people, you know, maybe at first are a little bit hesitant to take uh-huh. responsibility, and after a while, say, yeah, I can take responsibility. But they don't realize that taking responsibility is only half the battle. You've actually got to come up with a fucking solution. Yes. You know, in order to lead. And you have to come up with a solution and you have to implement the solution. Yeah. Yeah. You have to do those things. Yeah. We 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 talk about that all the yeah. time. Just taking ownership of the problem isn't isn't oh, where it stops. Yeah, I'm so glad you, you said that. Yes, you have to implement, find the solution and implement, e- the, implement solution. the solution. Execute. So you say one of the concepts uh, and the things that you you said in the book, extreme ownership that I love. You say there's no bad teams, only bad leaders, um, and that was, you know, that that reinforced something that I was suspicious of, but I've now seen the pr- enormous practical advantages from the extreme ownership perspective. But when you say, and again, and I apologize because some of these questions do sound loaded and a little bit rote, but when you say there are no bad teams, only bad leaders, what does that mean? It means that there's no bad teams, only bad leaders. It means when you take when you take a group of people and they're not performing well, the chances are that it's not the team's fault. It's that they're being poorly led. Now, of course, can you get a team where can that occasionally happen, where this team is just awful? Well, then yeah. But guess what? If I have an awful team and they're not performing well, I either need to train them, I need to fix them, I need to get rid of some people, I need to put new people in there. Regardless. Yeah. It's still my fault. It's still my responsibility. And that team, if they cannot perform, they're they're literally incapable of being competent and performing their duties. Still my fault mm. because I wouldn't allow that to happen. Yeah. So we're not going to have a bad team. And if I don't have people in there that are going to do well, then they're not going to be on that team. And there was an interesting situation where there was a uh, a SEAL task unit, which is you know thirty something guys, and they were they were having some problems. And they brought the senior, the senior, one of the senior guys in the in the task unit in and said, you know, what's going on with the task unit? I mean, this is not going well. And he says, Well, I'll tell you what's going on. And they have they had a board up with all the names of the different guys. And he he basically went and and the, the guys' names were on magnets. So so you got these boards that have everyone's name and what unit they're in, what task unit they're in. And so here's looking at all the names. 36 names. And he starts sliding the magnets, saying, this guy, he's arrogant. This guy, he's new, he has no experience. Putting these guys in this bad column. This guy, he he doesn't perform well under pressure. This guy, he's lazy. This guy, he's got a big mouth. Goes down the whole thing. And he slides two-thirds of the of the guys to the bad column, saying these guys aren't good people, these guys aren't good seals. And the, the guy that was actually in charge of the whole team said, okay, well, well thanks for that input. And, and the, the senior leader left, and then they were like, yeah, we're firing that guy. Because here's a guy that's saying that, you know, it's, it's two-thirds of his SEALs are messed up. Like, like no. Do you have some, in a, in a SEAL task unit, do you got five guys that aren't great performers? Maybe two or three of them are actually pretty bad? Yeah, of course. It's a bell curve just like anywhere else. But there's no way that you have two-thirds of your guys, 20 out of 30 or whatever, are actually bad guys. So they, they replaced that guy with a new leader, and guess what? All of a sudden, everyone's performing great. And, you know, the, the, the boat crew story is the same thing in the book. 
you replace that leader with someone good and you're going to you're going to change the dynamics of the situation and that's that's why and we're not the first people to say no bad teams no only bad only bad leaders napoleon said it. napoleon said something like no bad regiments only bad colonels and david hackworth said no bad units only bad officers so it's something that's been said many times and we didn't invent it uh, we no, just I, I we just told the story again you brought it mainstream animal current but um, you know, I love. I don't say I wouldn't say I love this, but one of the things that I've, I've found in my own situations where I've been having you know one-on-ones or discussions with business owners, and they, they tell me how bad their team is, and I talk about the concept that there are no bad teams, no only bad leaders, and they go to fight for it and say, but no, but you don't understand what these people are like. And, and then my first question is exactly, well, who hired these people, and how long have they been working for you? Mm-hmm. you know, have you what training program have they been through? Yeah. What 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 standard operating procedures yeah. have been implemented to make sure that they stay within the guardrails? What sort of briefs have been given to them so that they understand why they're doing what they're doing? There's all, we go all the way down that path. Absolutely, and at the point you realize they're, they're, not, they're redundant. Why haven't you acted? Why haven't you removed them and then protected the rest of your team? Which is actually a really important part of being a leader, isn't it? It's actually protecting your team from threat. And sometimes the threats are actually internal. For sure, yeah. for sure. And and that's something else we'll, we'll deal with or we'll hear people will make the comment around extreme ownership is, well, you know, we always say, hey, if you've got problems in your team, the first person you gotta look at is yourself, you know, as the leader. And then someone will say, well, I, you know, I got this guy, he's a real problem and I feel like it's my fault. And eventually you say, okay, did you counsel him? Did you talk to him? Did you lay out the right expectations? Did you make it perfectly clear what was expected of him? Does he know what the standards are and what he needs to do to meet those standards? And at the end of the day, if he can't meet those standards, does he know that you have to get rid of him? And once you've gone through that cycle with him, well then guess what? You're now responsible for getting rid of that person. Mm. So extreme ownership doesn't mean that as a leader, you take ownership of people that are incapable of doing their job. You take ownership of them being incapable by getting rid of them and, and keeping the, protect, like you said, protecting the rest of the team. People form relationships, which is huge. We wanna have a great relationship with everyone on my team. But if I form a relationship with my 10 guys and one of those guys isn't good, but I, but I you know, have a great relationship with him, and so I'm gonna keep him, even though he's dragging down the team, well, I need to think about my loyalty, not just to that one guy, but my loyalty to the whole team. So I have to be loyalty to loyal to the whole team, not just to that one guy, which means he has to go because he's bringing down the team. Which kind of touch on, touches on a concept that I absolutely I fucking adore. No one man is more important than the mission. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, and you can get in that situation where you develop these relationships, which is very, very yeah. positive. And I, the strength of a good business team, the strength of a good SEAL platoon, the strength of a good sports team, it's the the relationship dynamics within that team that makes it strong. And the stronger those relationships are, generally the better team you're gonna have until you cross over the line of now saying, oh, you know what? Uh, you know, Kerwin's, my, Kerwin's my, my boy and I wanna take care of Kerwin, so guess what? He's slacking a lot right now. He's kind of slacking right now. So what, what am I gonna do? You know, I'm gonna cut him some slack and I'm gonna let him take a few days off and he's not being productive to the team, but I'm gonna take care of him. And, and guess what? Now he didn't meet his quota, but I'm gonna shuffle some other people or shuffle some other numbers over so he still looks good and I'm gonna protect him and take care of him. And meanwhile, everyone else on the team is seeing this. So there becomes a point where you have to, you, the loyalty to the team has to trump the loyalty to the individuals. That was a huge concept, not just for me, but also for business owners that I've transferred this to is, the loyalty has to be to the team. It has to be to the mission, not to the individuals within that. And that, for some people, you know, it's it's a pretty big, it's a pretty big leap for them to internally get to the point where they're like letting go of friends. Mm-hmm. 
when in fact they're actually letting go of the enemy, if that makes sense. It, it does make sense. Um, another concept that I really uh, got a lot of value from was the importance of leading up and down the chain of command. Can you talk to that? Yeah. Well, you, the way you said that was backwards. You should have said leading down and up the chain of command. Yeah, that's what I had. Sorry. I had no, because, because, right, because everyone knows we lead down the chain of command, yeah. right? Everyone knows we set the example there. Everyone knows that. Yeah. What people don't understand is that as a leader, you have to lead up the chain of command. You've got to you've got to get your bosses and your your superiors on board with your plan, and you've got to lead them in the direction that you want to go, and lead them in the direction that's going to be positive for your mission. Which, by the way, is is a good thing because your mission is going to be aligned with their mission. And so it's not like I'm trying to my leader is telling me to do one thing, and I'm getting him to support my team going in another direction. No, no, no. I'm, I'm trying to accomplish the same thing. I mean, if it's a business, we're trying to take care of our customers and be profitable. So if, if I've come up with a plan that's gonna help me take care of our customers and be profitable, well then why would my boss not support that? Of course they're gonna support that. So I need to, they, but they might not understand why it's gonna work or they, well, I might need some investment from him and, and I might need new computers for my team so that it can process things faster. And I gotta convince my boss that that's gonna be beneficial in the long run. And he's gonna, he's gonna support me with that. So yes, you have to lead up the chain of command. Absolutely. I've actually found that this concept leading up and down the chain of command, when it's actually in, implemented and executed well, it actually in, really encourages extreme ownership because people start to realize their place in the chain. Oh yeah. And they start yeah. to realize when the chain breaks, you know, what their role is. Well, I get asked all the time, you know, what my boss does this and my boss does that. And I got a weak boss and I, you know, my, I love working for a weak boss. Give me a weak boss all day. Cause now I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm doing whatever I want. I mean, I'm, I'm leading, I'm going to take, I'm going to move forward. Oh, they're, they're not giving me good guidance. Cool. I'm going to create the guidance. I'm going to give it to them. And I'm going to say, this is what I'm doing. This is, this is, this is no problem. And same thing. I've got a micromanaging boss. Guess what? I'm going to, how do I deal with a micromanaging boss? I'm going to give them more information that they even know that they want. Oh, you want, you want 10 items from me every day? I'm giving you 27. And eventually you go, okay, Jocko, I trust you. You go out and I execute. That's fine. And that's what you're trying to do with your boss. No matter what kind of boss I had, I always had the same relationship with them. They trusted me and, and they gave me what I needed to execute the mission. One of the biggest challenges I hear from people is, yeah, come on, look, I'm, I'm a great leader with certain types of people, but there are certain types of people and I'm not a great leader. So how do we overcome that hurdle when we have to lead? Like, because business is quite diverse. When we look at the, the multi-generational gaps and the, mm -hmm. you know, the stark contrast in personality types and motivation styles of individuals, how do we as leaders learn to adapt to be able to lead and manage different personalities? Well, what you, there's, there are several things. First of all, in the SEAL teams, you get every, even though it appears from the outside, all oh, these guys all pretty much look the same bunch of alpha males. That's not true. You get some really aggressive guys. You get some pretty passive guys. You get guys from every socioeconomic background. You get kids that, you know, had a silver spoon in their mouth growing up and went to a prep school. And, and then you get some kid that was a gangbanger in LA and you're going to be in charge of both those people. And you got to figure out how to, to get them to, you know, unify behind this mission and, and execute. So it's the same thing. And how do you do it? You're going to build relationships with these people. You're going to understand. No matter who that person is, they're going to, under, they're going to want to understand why they're doing what they're doing. So that kind of leads me to the next question. How, how important is mission when it comes to bringing different personalities together? Like, well, yeah, everyone has to understand what the mission is. Yeah. Everyone has to understand what the mission it's is. It's a tool that you can use to bring people together. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the worst thing you could do is have people that don't understand what the mission is. But on top of understanding what the mission is, equally important, they have to understand why the mission, why are we doing this? Not just what we're doing, but why we're doing it. 
and you know in the in the in the military terminology it really is commander's intent of what i want to have happen but also why this is important because if and you have to tie this thread through so that it impacts the individual because People ultimately, they, they care for the group, but even on top of caring for the group, people have to, at least some people in a team are, are going to be concerned about themselves, right? What's in it for me? So if you work for me and I say, hey, you know, we want you to sell more. And, and if that's what I'm telling you, what well, you're not motivated to do that. You're not, you're not, you're not driving extra hard. And then if I tell you, hey, uh, I need you to sell more because I want the company to make more money. Well, what does that do for you? You still aren't there yet because you're thinking, okay, great. I'm going to work even harder and make Jocko even richer. Does that make sense? No, that doesn't make sense. So what am I trying to do? I'm still going to do the same minimum standards that I've been doing. But what if I tell you, hey, I want you to sell more. And here's why I want you to sell more. I want you to sell more because if you sell more, we're going to make more. If we make more, we're going to lower prices. If we lower prices, we're going to be able to, you're going to be able to sell even more. And I'm going to be able to raise your commission. And then you're going to make more. And by the way, the more you make, the more people are going to want to come here. And I'm going to build a team underneath you. And then you're going to make some of what they're making. And that's what I want for you. I want for you to be in a position where you're making more money than you ever even thought was possible. And it starts with you getting out there and grinding. So let's do this, right? So I tie that thread in not only for it's good for the company and it's good for the profitability and it's good for me as the big boss man to make more money. No, how does that affect you on the front lines? Why are we doing this? Not just for the team, but how does that why impact you as an individual? So in that, in that, from that perspective, how important is it for us as leaders to get to know the drivers of our teammates to be able to create that relationship? Clearly, it's very important. Yeah. You have to understand. You have to understand that. And actually, I got asked this question the other day. What if you tell the person why, but the, this is the actual question was, someone's just driven by money. What if I got a person that doesn't care about the mission, but they're just driven by money, they just want to make more money. What am I supposed to do with that person? And, and I said, well, okay. Why do you think they want to make more money? Because you told them your why, right? Hey, it's not just about making money. We want to do this for the good of the community and we want to help. We're building water filters that are going to, okay, that's great. That's great. And this person doesn't seem to care about that. They want to make money. Well, now it's your turn as a leader to say, I wonder why this person wants to make so money, so much money. Why is that? Well, guess what? This person has, you know, has a sick child. This person has a sick mom. This person wants to, wants to pay off you know, a foreclosed house that their parents had. Why, why is that person? Why does that person need more money? And let's help them and, and help that motivation. Because if they're making money for them, guess what? They're making money for the company too. So even though the why might not be totally aligned, they're not opposed to each other. Mm. They're, they're, they are aligned. So that's okay. So when someone says that maybe their motivation is to make money, there's perhaps a few questions away from the truth. Mm-hmm. So um. Extreme ownership. What are you going to do with your money? Hang it up on the wall? Yeah. Right? Roll around on it. Roll, roll around on it, put it in a pillow? No, you're going to do something yeah. productive with it. Maybe it's take care of your family. Maybe it's pay back some debts that you got yourself. I don't know. But let's find find out why that is and, and let's help you get there. Is there, with this level of extreme ownership, is it can it ever get to a point where you can take too much ownership to the point where you enable people's 
um, desire not to take responsibility. Yes, that can happen very easily. That can happen very easily. You can cross the line and take too much ownership, especially, you can't take too much ownership of problems. You can't take too much ownership of failure. But what you can take too much ownership is of the mission itself. So if I want you to do something and I say, hey, Kerwin, I want you to, I want you to attack this target over here. And then I say, and here's the people I want you to take with you. And here's the vehicles I want you to take. And here's the route I want you to use. And here's the methodology I want you to use to hit the target. And here's the, what I want you to do with the prisoners. And I give you the entire plan and I force that on you. Is that your plan? Mm. Will you take true ownership of that no, plan? No, you won't. And so now what happens when you get out in the field? Now you get out in the field and you hit an obstacle and you already had a negative attitude because it's not your plan. You don't have any ownership of it. And now you hit an obstacle in the field and you go, we're going back to base, everyone. And then you get back to base and you say, Jocko, your plan sucked. And I go, damn, I guess it did because it failed. Mm -hmm. So instead I say, hey, Kerwin, I want you to hit this target out here. Come up with a plan and let me know how you want to do it. Well, now you start coming up. And even better than you coming up with a plan, you bring the plan to your team and you say, hey, guys, this is the target we're going to hit. How do you guys want to hit it? And now you and your team come up with a plan. And now you and everyone on the team has ownership of that plan. And when you and everyone on the team has ownership of the plan and you go out in the field and you hit an obstacle, what do you do to the obstacle? You destroy it. You destroy it. Yeah. And you accomplish the mission. And you come back and you say, hey, we did it. Mm. And you know what I say? Awesome. And I put my ego aside because that's what drives a lot of this. Sometimes people say, it's my plan. I don't care whose plan it is. I want it to be your plan. And I've been talking about this lately. If, if my plan is a 90% solution because I've been doing this forever and your plan is like a 80% solution, whose plan should we go with for you to go execute? Whose plan should we have, have you execute? Mine. Yes. Mm. Yes. What if my plan is 90 but yours only a 70% solution? Whose plan should we have you go execute? Still mine. What about 60% solution for you and 90 for me? What about now? Ooh, now we're getting tricky. Yeah, it's actually not that tricky. You know why? Because a 60% solution is very easy for me to point out to you why it's weak. So then it becomes very easy for me to say, hey, Kerwin, I, I kind of like what you came up with, but look at this over here. This is a bad road. This is a channelized area. If you go through that, the enemy's going to know exactly where you were. Whereas if you come in from this side over here, you can still execute your plan, but you just use a different entry point. So now I've gotten you to from 60 to now 85, and we're good. It's still your plan. It's still my plan. You yeah. Just a little bit of a nudge in the right direction. That's fantastic. What does happiness mean to you? For me, getting up and getting after it is, is, is making me happy. What are your favorite qualities in team players? Humility. People that are humble, people that aren't that aren't letting their ego get in the way of things, people that are saying, oh, you know what? That's a good plan. I like that plan better than mine. Or, hey, that seems like a good way to do this. Well, let's, let's do it that way. And of course, that has to be balanced because I want someone that balances their humility with the confidence to make things happen and say, hey, you know what, Jocko? Actually, I don't agree with your plan. Here's what I think we should do. I go, oh, well, tell me about it. Because I don't want to be surrounded by a bunch of yes men. They're, they're not going to help me. They're not going to impact my decision making. They're just saying yes to whatever I want. And when I tell, when I say, Kerwin, go charge that machine gun nest, and you go, okay, boss. And now you charge the machine gun nest and half your guys get killed and you don't even take the objective. Is that good? No, it's not good. When I want someone that's going to say, Kerwin, go charge that machine gun nest, and you go, hold on a second. Why are we going to charge that machine gun nest when we could put some, you know, close air support on it from the sky and then we can move around to the side and flank it? How about we do that instead? And I go, yeah, that sounds like a better idea than the one that I had. 
So I don't want to be surrounded by a bunch of yes men. I want them to be humble, yes, but I want them to also be confident. What do you think is the most important quality in a leader? Humility. It's humility. Because if you're not humble, then you're not listening to anybody else. You're, you're underestimating the enemy and you're not even doing a good assessment of yourself. And the minute you let your guard down, the minute you stop listening to people, the minute you stop trying to learn is the minute that you start going backwards. And if there was one thing every leader could do, regardless of whether they're new to leadership or they've been leading teams for 40 years, what is one thing, what's one practice that every leader should be doing every day? Listen, listen, listen to your people, talk to your people, engage with people, learn what they're thinking and develop relationships with them. Again, that's what, that's what makes a team successful is when you have these powerful relationships and relationships is another word for trust. And as we build that trust up within a team, that's when you become unstoppable because if we trust each other, then you're able to come to me and you're able to say, Hey, Jocko, I don't like this idea here. And you trust that I'm not going to jump down your throat. And I trust that you're doing this not for your own personal good, but because it's the best way to execute something for the team. So build those relationships, listen to what people have to say and, and, and build that trust as well. Something you mentioned earlier, you said being on the lookout for the stress red flags so that when you can identify that you're stressed, you can step back, you can detach, step back, look around and make a move. What are some of the red flags as leaders that we need to be aware of? If you start raising your voice. It's the same basic thing. Yeah. The other thing that you watch out for addition, in addition to those are, is when you're telling me, when you're giving me your feedback, if it's frustrating me, why is your feedback frustrating me, right? If I'm, in, if I'm your boss and you're giving me feedback, why is it, why is it frustrating me? That, that's, that's a red flag for ego, right? If you come back to me and you say, hey boss, why are we doing it this way? And it makes me mad that you asked a question, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta put myself in check. I should actually be happy you're asking me that question. Mm. I should be saying, oh, awesome. Kerwin is engaged and he wants to know why we're doing what we're doing so he can go out and execute properly out on the battlefield. That's a beautiful thing. I shouldn't be like, shut up, Kerwin, you do what I told you, you don't ask why. Yours is not to question why, yours is to do or die. No, 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 that's actually not true. No, I want you to question why. And if I can't give you a good reason, then maybe I don't have a good reason and maybe there's another way that we could execute this thing. <laughs> um, your business, Echelon Front, is the business that you started after you left the military. What is it that Echelon Front does? We help businesses and teams get their leadership aligned, trained, practiced, working together, fully functional, and formulated as a team so that they're all on the same sheet of music so they can go dominate. So are you essentially taking the same principles of leadership that you've learned and also developed from the Navy SEALs and you're actually deploying it within business? Absolutely. And how successful has it been? It's been, it's been awesome. Yeah, it's been it's been incredibly successful. Yeah. And and not only, I mean, more important than it's been successful for us as a business, what's really awesome is that it's been hugely successful with the companies oh, we've worked with and we see them, their their everything that they do changes. Mm. And it's phenomenal to see it, phenomenal to watch. And now it's becoming very it's the anticipated result and we know it. And so it's, it's become awesome to, to be a part of. And when we look at a company, we go into a company and we recognize what the problems are and we see them and, and you can watch these problems turn around. And it's a very simple, very complex and yet very simple is the fact that when you look at a company and you, you isolate what their problems are, 
whether it's they're not profitable enough, whether they're not growing quickly enough, whether they're not efficient enough, whether they aren't getting into new markets, whether they've got people that are leaving, whatever problem that this company has, there is one solution to it, one. And that's leadership. That's leadership. It's 100%. And so no matter what company comes with what problem they have, oh, you've got a problem where your, your manufacturing line isn't moving quickly enough. Guess what problem that is? It's leadership. Oh, you've got a problem where your sales team isn't moving the kind of numbers that they're supposed to be moving. Guess what problem that is? Leadership. Oh, you've got a company and they're having some safety issues. Guess what kind of problem that is? Leadership. So all these problems, all these problems, every problem that you deal with on a team is a leadership problem. And that's one of the reasons that Echelon Front has been so successful because regardless if we're working with a company, a construction company that's having safety problems or a financial company that's having sales problems or regulatory problems, guess what? All those problems need the same solution. And that is good leadership that is aligned and knows how to execute. Mm. You know, I love that. So you've written a number of books. You've written Extreme Ownership, which is fantastic. Yes. And for those people who are listening who haven't read that book, I strongly recommend reading it. I also recommend the, the, the audio. That audio, you know, was incredible, especially with the sound effects. We have so far probably given away about 500 of those books to our members within our communities and the transformations that we've seen take place as a result of the adoption. It's so strong within our community now where we use Extreme Ownership. It's just a concept. It's a language. It's a part of our vernacular yep. now, yep. which has been incredibly powerful for us. But what are the books... Have you have you written or have you got coming out that people might want to know about? So I read a kid's book. I wrote a kid's book. I wrote a kid's book called "The, the Way of the Warrior Kid," which has done. It's been it's been awesome. And and what's been awesome about it is it sold great, which is great. Yeah. But the feedback that I get from from parents and from kids, and the the story is it's about a kid. He's in fifth grade, which means he's ten years old, and it's his last day of school before summer. And the kid, he doesn't know his times tables yet. He can't do any pull-ups. He doesn't know how to swim. And he's getting picked on at school by Kenny Williamson, the bully. And so this, this young kid, Mark, his last day of school, all this kind of comes crashing down on him. And he runs behind the, school and behind the school library and he's crying. And anyways, when he gets home, he remembers that it's his, his uncle Jake is coming to stay with him for the summer. And his uncle Jake was in the SEAL teams. And they're actually staying in the same room at the house. And, and that night, Uncle Jake says to this young kid, Mark, he says, you know, what do you wanna to do tomorrow? Let's do something tomorrow. It's hot, let's go, let's go for a swim or something. And the kid says, uh, no, I, I don't wanna go swimming. Well, you wanna go play basketball or something? I, I don't wanna play basketball. Well, at least just let's go for a swim. And the kid says, I, 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 I don't wanna swim. As a matter of fact, I can't swim. And then he breaks down. And he tells his uncle, can't swim, don't know my timetable, I'm getting picked on at school, and I can't even do any pull-ups. And his uncle listens to him and says, okay, good. All these problems that you've got, these can all be fixed. We need to get you on the program. We need to get you some discipline. And that's what he does. Works out with him, teaches him how to swim, teaches him Brazilian jiu-jitsu, teaches him how to study so he can learn. And transformational for the kid, and goes back to school and, and ends up writing his own code about being a warrior. And that's where the title of the book comes from. So that book's out. I'm actually in the pro process of writing the follow-on to that book, mm. 
which is which is which is having a lot of fun with that. The second Warrior Kid book starts off with young Mark, last day of school. He's in the principal's office. He's in trouble. And so that's the way it kicks off. Uh, some trouble in paradise. I have a book called Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. Did you know about that book? No, I didn't. Oh, Is yeah. this the top secret thing you're working on in Queenstown that you couldn't tell me about at the time? Uh, I don't even remember. <laughs> Possibly. But Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. Yeah. It is a book divided into two parts. The first part is called Thoughts. The second part is called Actions. The thoughts are kind of my sort of individual operating system and the things that I think about. Your psychology. And the second part of it is the actions that I take on a daily basis, what time I get up, what I eat, what I how I work out, martial arts, everything that sort of is the activities in my life is in the actions part. And then what's interesting about this book is it's not a normal book. And I'll, I'll show you, I'll show you what it looks like, but it's not normal. It's, it's, it's not normal. It's, 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 it's a different kind of book. It's, it's an upgrade, isn't it? Yeah, it's, there's no book like it. And wow. luckily I had the freedom with the publisher to, to actually and literally do whatever I wanted to do. So I got to design the whole thing, what I wanted it to look like. And it's lean. It's, it's like a field manual, which is a military, yeah. you know, a military term. So that's what it's like. Fantastic. Yep. And also you have an incredible podcast, which has gained huge notoriety. It's just like, it's off the charts. Incredible. Where can people find out more about the podcast? The podcast is called Jocko Podcast. Yeah. And it is really a podcast about human nature. That's what it is. It's a podcast about human nature viewed through the lens of war and struggle. And it's, 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 it's definitely about leadership. And I, and I talk about leadership, but in order to be a really good leader, you have to understand people. And so where's the best place to see human beings and what they're capable of in a positive and in a negative way? It's through war. And so much of the podcast, I, I review books about war, almost all of them first person accounts of things that have happened. And I compare them to things that I've been through and things that I've seen and decisions that I've made. And, and then we do questions and answers. So we talk about, you know, people ask me questions about business and leadership and so I answer those questions and then talk about other things that are, are good to have in your life, like physical fitness and martial arts and surfing mm. and other things like that. So, but yeah, it's been, it's been awesome. It's been, it's the way it's been received has been pretty phenomenal. I, I wouldn't, or I wouldn't have predicted that this many people would be wanting to hear these subjects, but I think that I think I think people are fascinated by the way, but the by the way human beings work, and that's what we talk about. So I think it's been a, an absolute game changer for your for your brand and for your personality. And when you listen to it, you can you can really see why. But um, you know, we talk about discipline, we talk about routine, and we talk about the the freedom that that gives us. What does it, what does a standard operating day look like in the world of Jocko Willink? So I wake up early in the morning. I wake up around four thirty. And once I get up, I, you know, brush my teeth, hit the head, and I go work out. My workouts can be anywhere from 15 minutes to three hours, depending on the day, depending on what I've got going on. 
And when I get done with that, it also depends on what the waves are like, because if the waves are good, I'll, I'll do a shorter workout and I'll go surfing, get done surfing. I come in, I, I write, so I have to write. You know, I've got multiple books on the horizon, so we've got to follow up to extreme ownership. So I've got to write, and then I've got to respond to clients and, and, and talk to all the businesses that we're in the process of consulting with. So that takes up, you know, the, the kind of the normal working hours of a person. And then at nighttime, I go and I train jiu-jitsu usually. Uh, well, if I'm in San Diego, definitely I'll come and train jiu-jitsu. And in the, intermingled into this stuff is, you know, walking a kid to school. I've got four kids, so, you know, walking a kid to school or dropping a kid off at school or going to a wrestling practice or whatever the, the case may be. But And then get home, hang out with the family a little bit, eat some dinner, and then usually once everyone's in bed, I'll, I'll, I'll do more work. And I, I usually go to bed around 11, 30, 11 o'clock at night, generally. One of the things I really love about you is, is how uh, approachable you make yourself on Twitter. You're always answering questions. Like, again, I don't follow a lot of people on Twitter, but you are one of the people I do. And I see you're constantly responding to people. Is that a great way if someone wanted to ask you a question in order to reach out? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely... I know it's getting harder. It harder. is. I, I lost control at about, uh, I don't know, maybe four or five months ago where there's just too many people and, I, and I, I physically couldn't do it. I mean, I physically couldn't respond to every single person. But I do look at every single question. If it's a good question, it goes right into my podcast question bank. Yeah. Uh, if it's a good question I can answer briefly, I'll, I'll answer it right there on Twitter. And, and, and then when I can't do, uh, like I still jump on Twitter, for instance, it takes me 12 minutes to get to the airport. It takes me an hour at the airport, you know, waiting for my flight, there's an hour and 12 minutes. I will hammer on Twitter that entire time. When I land, it'll take me 15 minutes to get out of an airport. It'll take me an hour to get to wherever the car's taking me. I'll hammer Twitter that time. Sometimes I'll get, you know, going to LA, I'll be on a train for two hours where I don't really get work done. So I'll just hammer on Twitter. So I, yeah, I hammer on Twitter. Uh, um, I answer Facebook, not as much. It's a little bit more clunky of a platform for me, yeah. for the way I respond and to get through everyone and make sure I'm trying to get through everyone. It's a little bit challenging, but Twitter's great. And people have been, people have given me great information on Twitter. Some of the books from the podcast have come from recommendations on Twitter. Some of the feedback, I mean, a lot of feedback that I get comes from people on Twitter. And what what's awesome about is, is getting the, the feedback from people that say, Hey, thanks. I listened to this podcast. I, I solved this problem. I lost 75 pounds or I gained 12 pounds or I finished my first marathon or, and that's, that's awesome. And when I meet people either in public or I meet people via social media that are coming in and saying that it's having an impact, well, that's, that's one of the things that, you know, speaking of happiness, that's one of the things that makes me happy to know that I'm, I'm helping somebody else turn the corner in their life, whether it's someone that's already high performing and now they're doing even better or whether that's someone that's been in a dark place that, you know, hopefully they're, we're, we're helping them pull out of that dark place and they're, they're moving towards the light. Either one of those things is, is great for me. And I, I'm, I'm very happy to hear those things. And that definitely fuels my fire to continue to grind. You certainly helped a lot of, a lot of people, man. I'm one of them. Jocko Willing, this has been an absolute honor. Real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. Thank Appreciate you. it. Thank you. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And do me a favor, don't forget to drop me a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear what you think. I love reading what you guys have to say. And your reviews make sure we keep creating killer content just like this. If you want to stay up to date with me and all my movements, please jump onto the website, kerwinray.com. And also check us out on social media, at Kerwin Ray.